Welcome, Brother Adam Baraz, to the Unspeakable Bliss podcast. Listeners, welcome to episode number. Again, I lost track because we just are cranking these babies out. Uh, first, I'm going to introduce Adam. He has practiced body work professionally for nearly a decade, having accumulated more than a thousand hours of body work training from premier schools, including Esalen Institute and McKinnon. He received a degree in somatic psychology from Naropa University. And since then, he completed a three-year training in somatic experiencing trauma therapy. He also completed a year-long counseling psychology certificate training with Interchange Counseling Institute. In 2015, he was elected to be a counseling skills teacher on the Interchange Leadership Team. Over the past decade, Adam has devoted several thousand hours, yes, ladies and gentlemen, several thousand hours to the practice of meditation. His father, James Baraz, author of Awakening Joy, is a founding teacher of Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And the teachings of Dr. Reggie Ray of the Dharma Ocean, of DharmaOcean.org, rather, have had a profound influence on his understanding of somatic meditation, healing, and embodied transformation. His current principal meditation teachers are Lama Dramed Norbu, heir of Chagdu Tolku Rinpoche, forgive my pronunciation of this, and Choku Niyam. Niyama, Niyama Rinpoche, and he has spent nearly a year, a whole year of his life in retreat. Welcome, brother. Thank you. I didn't know that we were going to get the, the whole rundown here. It's been a while. <laughs> I've edited that bio. Uh, but anyway, it's great to be here with you. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you need no introduction, but uh, in the pantheon of my life, I can say that you are uh, one of those shining examples of a great human being. And I'm, it's an honor to be on your podcast. So thanks for inviting me. My pleasure, brother. My pleasure. Mm. So would you like to, well, first, one other thing I want to share is, uh, although Adam is all of these, or embodies and has spent time in all of these different things that I pointed to, and since then more, as he uh, alluded to, he's also a dear brother, a dear friend of mine, and we got the chance to spend a good uh, 10 days together here in Costa Rica a year, year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's let it rip. You know, I'm happy to get into whatever we're going to get into today and excited to make a journey. First, longer story story, it's entirely up to you. How did you wind up on Unspeakable Bliss podcast speaking with me? And after this, this journey that you've gone on that I uh, spoke to how did you arrive in this moment how did I arrive in this moment wow what's your story man 
What's my Which story? Okay. Okay. We'll do some cliff notes here. Uh, uh, a little bit about my story. Uh, grew up here in the Bay Area in Berkeley, California. Um, very thankful for incredible parents. My mom, Jane, and my father, James. Um, grew up in a I'd say a spiritual household. My father, um, as you mentioned, is a meditation teacher in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition and uh, a founding teacher of Spirit Rock with, with Jack Cornfield. So grew up in uh, Vipassana insight meditation community and um, yeah, grew up I guess somewhat uniquely in terms of having been uh, exposed at a pretty young age into kind of notions of mindfulness and and deeper questioning of what's life about, what's reality about. Good karma. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> um, and then of course, you know, just like, like, pretty much everyone, you know, just thrust through the trials and throes of being a young person. Middle school was very rough on me. High school was rough on me. You know, college, I was, um, you know, just very much in my own world in, in, in many senses. You know, I could say that I had, there were certain things that happened kind of early in life uh, unrelated to my family of origin that just um, where I really felt kind of alone or existentially alone, existentially grappling with my own existence and in a great deal of, I would say, uh, aloneness, depression, kind of trauma, pretty much I'd say from seven to 19, seven to 18, 19, went through a really dark night of the soul. Um, and during that time around middle school, that's kind of when I started to get into to meditation practice. I was in enough existential anguish and suffering that when my dad recommended that I check out this middle school meditation class, I said yes. And that was kind of in middle school was the beginning of actually starting to learn mindfulness practice and um, started to get into my own spiritual path around that time. And then, um, you know, very much was, on the one hand, you know, very interested in spirituality, also grew up, you know, I was a stoner in high school. I was very much in the, in, in the exploration of my own consciousness in the exploration of reality and like went through all the peaks and valleys and, and dips. And I'd say that, that, that journey really brought me around. Um, yeah. My, my young adult years into feeling a strong call to start to work with my own inner state of being and um, starting to work on on healing my own nervous system on and starting to work with some of the tra traumatic events that had happened in my life. And that um, I really would say I found 
a deeper sense of rooting into the spiritual path. Uh, around 19, I took a trip um, at the nudging of my mom uh, to India. And I was part of a, a program called the Antioch Buddhist Studies Program. And it was an incredible program uh, where uh, myself and 35 other, uh, 34 other college students, we lived in a monastery in, in India, Bodh Gaya, India, where very close to just down the street from where the, the Buddha's, uh, the Bodhi tree, where the, the Buddha had his great awakening um, mm -hmm. down the street. And so lived in a monastery there and started to, uh, was practicing learning various meditation traditions uh, with uh, a Burmese Vipassana Theravadan teacher, Theravadan master, uh, Saida Ulamin, and then uh, also a Zen master for a month, uh, Sensei Akai Kurimatsu, learning Zen meditation, and then a month with uh, a Lama, a Rinpoche a teacher that you mentioned. His mm -hmm. name is Tricky Chokinima Rinpoche. So Say it again. Is His it? name is Chokinima Rinpoche. Chokinima. 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 C-H-O-K-Y-I. Chokinima. Uh, great son of the Dharma. His name means. He really looks, he's the son. So uh, uh, for those of you who are interested, he he's like, uh, he looks like Yoda. And his father, actually, his father uh, was a great uh, meditator named Tulku Ergen Rinpoche, who was actually George Lucas's inspiration for Yoda. Um, wow, that's cool. So, uh, you know, that was the lineage when I met Chokinima Rinpoche. He, you know, he kind of, he walks into the room and there's just this kind of overwhelming experience of warmth and presence that emanates and radiates from him. And when I met uh, Rinpoche in, in India, I felt like, wow, whatever, whatever he's doing, that's what I, I wanna know more about. So when I, uh, in this program, uh, felt a strong connection to Rinpoche, then, um, went through a blessing ceremony at the end of that program and felt that that strong connection to Rinpoche and began studying in this um, Vajrayana tradition of Buddhist practice um, or Dharma practice and spent about seven summers studying at uh, his center in California, in Leggett, California. Uh, it's called Gomde. And uh, had, you know, just a great fortune. This this center, Gomde, uh, Rinpoche is, you know, very vast in his vision and had really incredible teachers from this lineage uh, come. He's he has a, a number of all-star meditator brothers. Um, Perhaps folks have heard of Mingyur Rinpoche, who was very famous. He wrote a book called In Love with the World, where he, um, mm -hmm. he's like a, a well-known lama and very established, but he actually escaped from his own monastery and uh, lived by himself uh, as a, 
as like a hermit, vagabond, yogi without money, without, you know, any protection or attendance. And uh, so he just, anyways, this whole family is kind of a, a very unique family of, of meditators. Another brother, Sokni Rinpoche, also is a great uh, Tibetan, but Western Buddhist teacher and like that. So that's kind of been one of the main uh, practice lineages that I've studied with in this tradition. And then also uh, around 23 met another one of my main teachers, uh, Dr. Reggie Ray, studied with him at Dharma Ocean uh, very closely for about six years. And um, yeah, have been very deeply influenced by his teachings and the view that he presents of uh, somatic meditation, according to the another tradition, uh, the Kagyu or the Mahamudra tradition of of Vajrayana Buddhism. So that's that's that level of some of some of the, my influences and in training. Uh -huh. But um, yeah, I'd say also along the way, definitely um, very much in the school of life so uh-huh yeah well if i'm hearing you correctly and i want everyone else to hear this again i'm talking to a guy whose grand teacher is the real life yoda like let's just take that in for a moment right not your not your teacher but his teacher is the guy that yoda was based on that's that that's correct yeah <laughs> that's pretty sweet wow um oh and then a note on uh that book in love with the world so when sladka and i were in india uh, nepal india a couple of years ago we went to this teaching by one of these masters i don't remember exactly what his name was it's a very beautiful place and then like a year later, I got introduced to this book and I started reading this book and I was, I was in, in my mind's eye imagining what this, um, the monastery where he escaped from, because he goes into, into detail as to how he escaped and waited at night to the guards were asleep or whatever it is. And I'm imagining going and being at this place. Right. And then I look it up. I, I later many months later i look it up and i go oh my god i was there i was walking it was it was actually his place so it's just this really uh kind of synchronous moment um you were at the monastery he escaped yeah. i was at the i was actually at the monastery that he escaped from and then i started reading the book thinking like wow how cool would it be to go to this monastery only to realize when i later saw pictures of it that that was the same place that Zadka and I actually visited this teacher at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't think the teacher was him that we wanted to sit with for the, the blessing that he was giving, but it's still pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here we are. You guide the way. What are we, dude, what are we doing when we're meditating? What, what, what is, You've you've docked these hours. You've been with these teachers. What what's happening when we're meditating?
you know, I don't know if I'm necessarily qualified to say exactly what's what's happening for anyone else. Okay. Meditating. Um, but I'll share a little bit about a perspective that mm-hmm. has been helpful for me. You know, first off to say, I think there's there's many different forms of meditation. So mm-hmm. it's helpful to distinguish that when we say meditation, uh, we're not always talking about the same thing. Yeah, and there's different ways, different techniques, meditation techniques. Um, in my own path, you know, I started uh, with doing insight meditation or Vipassana meditation, which probably some listeners are, are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And in Vipassana meditation, there's, you know, the, the, the main vehicle is the practice of mindfulness. And so there's uh, a quality of attention to into the present moment. And that can be attention to the body, breath, thoughts and feelings, sensations. And in a sense, starting to notice how thoughts, feelings, sensations are moving and arising and being known and then uh, transforming or changing. So actually a little more about my story. So uh, that was, you know, Vipassana meditation, insight meditation, it's it's what my father teaches. And uh, I was on a long three month, uh, I was on a three month silent meditation retreat. That was really my first long retreat. I've actually never done another three-month retreat, so that was my first and only. Um, but during that that retreat, when I was about 20, oh, 23, um, I had horrible back pain. And I was sitting, you know, basically the practice of sitting and walking and paying attention, paying attention to when I'm when I'm sitting and I'm breathing, I'm breathing in and I feel my breath coming in. And I feel my breath going out, except for that. I have this big rock in the back of my, my, in my back, and it was hard to be present. And I asked the teachers at that time, you know, can you help me with this, this intense pain that uh, I'm, I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the practice, you know, that's being offered is the practice of, of, uh, paying attention, paying attention to what's happening. Mm -hmm. That was was the basic uh, approach that the teachers uh, kind of responded, well, see if you can pay attention, see if you can be present and cultivate a witness consciousness. And basically the idea that there is a a consciousness that is not uh, perhaps entangled in the experience, but that is as knowing the experience. So I tried that, but still I could say that I was just kind of constantly rolling in in the in my own uh, resistance and challenge with all that. And that's in that experience, that was the beginning of me really feeling like, okay, I know that mindfulness is very powerful, but there's yeah. got to be something else that can help me with the physical pain and uh, challenges I'm, I'm facing inside myself. 
And that's when I found this work, uh, not so long after, while I was in Colorado at Naropa, uh, I found uh, Reggie's work, uh, what he calls meditating with the body. And that's when I was introduced to somatic meditation. And so, so just to answer a little bit more, when we said, what do we do when we're meditating? I like to, um, I'll share a little bit of the somatic approach. To mm -hmm. I was going to ask you about that. You know, so uh, first off to just define the word somatic, because mm -hmm. um, there's probably a, a bunch of definitions you could give. But for me, somatic is everything beneath the thinking process. You know, it's, it's how it actually feels inside my body suit. What's it like? What's the lifiness like inside, inside the body? This and headache I have right now would qualify for that. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So most of the time, I think uh, we're, we're engaging through our thinking process, through the attentional focus of our, you know, cerebral left hemisphere, where we're focusing on a subject object relationship to the world. And in contrast, the somatic approach is learning how to be in the body beneath the thinking process or being in, you could say more of a direct experience of life. Mm -hmm. You know, and the, the basic approach, which to me is, is very elegant is that, you know, everywhere you go, you are in your body. You, the, your body is always here and now with whatever you're doing. So uh, sometimes in meditation, we you know, are trying to bring our mind back to the present moments, bring our attention back to the present moments. In, in somatic meditation, we're learning how to be in the experience that's happening inside the body. And the basic idea is that if we can actually just be in our embodied experience, our body is already naturally present here and now. So I think we're going to go down the path of rigorous honesty right now. Let's do it. Um, we, we brought up this, this topic before we started recording of talking about uh, exploring rigorous honesty. And this is, this is what is, I find it to be kind of challenging to even speak about this because I have had a lot of time meditating similar to you, not as much as you, but I've, I've practiced a lot. And I, I've now arrived at the point where if I sit here and I say, okay, what's, what's going on in my body? And I start with my body. All I can really get down to is that there's just this field of sensations mm -hmm. and it's not even obvious to me anymore where my body ends and the world begins mm -hmm. there's just uh, I, I, i've said on other podcasts there's the, the best words i could give to this is thisness or just this and why it's kind of a challenge and i'm wondering maybe if you you've worked with people or given some thought to this as well is i don't know if 
I would have arrived at this point, if not for all the experiences that I've had to quote unquote, get to this point. Mm -hmm. And so when I offer the, the pointer, uh, to my experience, which is just thisness is very, is very different than I am suffering with fill in the blank, whatever, whatever that may be when I am exclusively identifying my body and my mind as well, the, what you're seeing here on the screen is this, this I'm pointing to my head to indicate mine, but the, just this and everything else is other than, other than that. Mm -hmm. Explore this with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes I need a moment just to take it in. So I'm going to. Mm -hmm. We got all the, all the moments. You know, something that really has informed my experience with meditation is um, really focusing in on the awareness that is being present with experience. And I say that because... Um, Sometimes meditation is being presented in such a way that it's it sounds like something I do. I am going to now go sit and meditate. And it's true on, on one level, right? We can sit in a meditation posture and now I am performing the act of meditation. But... In some way, if we're, if there's an effort or a, a certain kind of trying to, to meditate, then it can be a practice where our ego mind is performing or doing the meditation. And that's not wrong or bad. I think there's a lot of uh, benefit that can come from that. But uh, one of the teachings that's been really helpful for me that, um, you know, comes from this tradition, the tradition of Yoda, you know, Yoda, mm -hmm. uh, Tolko Ergen Rinpoche, he was an incredible meditator. You know, he spent 20 years uh, in solitary retreat. And he was famous for these very pithy teachings, very, very to the heart, to the point meditation uh, teachings. And so uh, one of his most stripped down teachings was as it is. Mm. Leave it, whatever your experience is, leave it as it is. It's so simple.
So in a, in a simple way, I'll share a little bit what I think he's kind of implying. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, you and I, we have our eyes open. Our ears are open and functioning. Eyes, ears, and at the same time, also our body is, uh, you could say, conscious or registering feeling, sensation, energy, perhaps a feeling tone, emotion. So eyes, ears, and body are online. They're present. And that's happening all the time, actually. There's a, just a natural sensory awareness into the environment through the eyes, through the ears, through the heart, through the body. And normally what we're doing is we're then trying to focus our energy on a task, on an object, on an email. And so there's a, a thought or a, a concept or a mission, a goal in mind. That's not what uh, Yoda is talking about. He's talking about before we get involved with that and after we get involved with that, there's just a, an openness through the eyes, through the ears, through the body. And what happens if we just let everything else go and we just take a moment just to rest just letting everything, whatever the experience is, just letting it take place openly and freely in the field of the space, you'd say. So there's, maybe you can feel it, right? There's a sense of freshness. There's a sense of just whatever's ordinarily happening right now that continues to happen. And just kind of relaxing into that field of the happening or the beingness, or as you say, the suchness but we're not adding an extra level of meaning making to that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's a kind of a, a freshness. It's not like your mind is somewhere else, 
but it's not like your mind is focused on any particular thing. It's kind of a, a nothing, but an everything that's here as well. Mm -hmm. And that's my sense of when you say, what are we doing in meditation? Mm -hmm. We just strip it all down as it's the presence. It's the presence that the body is naturally aware. Or the consciousness that is flowing through the body, that's keeping all of your cells alive, all of your vital functions going. That's that same intelligence is also operating in as a, a kind of uh, present, fresh knowing of experience. But it, we don't need extra language to um, tell a story about that. Mm -hmm. we can actually just learn how to be in that present, fresh, pure unfolding of nowness. Well, I have nothing to say. Unspeakable bliss. Uh, I'm laughing because I have a podcast about talking at some level about this it's a funny thing it's a funny thing to do and I really appreciate this kind of guided experience that we just naturally are in and went into that you just shared and there's there's one piece that my my pesky old mind wants to uh, ask you about to explore with you. Let's dig in now. All right. <laughs> so you mentioned that uh, I'm just gonna call him Yoda now. Uh, talked about how right. it's something that's there before we begin doing being the one doing the meditation, or it's just it's this already it's what's already here and uh i want to explore the relationship with effort and intention and outcome especially when we're meditating or, or, or engaging in one of these practices where we're not doing it, but we're wanting to sort of see what it is. And I'll encapsulate it with this quote that I think comes from Zen, which is, we can't control an accident, but practice makes us accident prone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's the interplay between effort and effortlessness? Yeah, and that's, that's kind of, I mean, in a way, I'm asking, what are we doing here, again, with the meditation thing, if it's already, what, or why would anyone listening to this, or why would you, you've gone on such a, a, a lengthy path, it, it would be clear to me that there's some benefit, there's something really supportive, beneficial, good, and I, I feel the same way uh, about this, but 
sometimes people will ask me, it's like, well, if we're already that, then what, what, why would I do this or engage in a practice like this? Mm-hmm. What do you think? <laughs> so what I can say about this is I have noticed a relationship between effort and those that walk into a room like your teacher and you feel, oh man, I just, I want to be around this person. There's something, maybe I can't even put it into words, but there's something right. And I mean that in, in the way of beautiful true about the 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 fruits yeah the the fruits of practice so so for me it's it's very clear that even though man i mean sometimes i sit down hopelessly to meditate i go all right here i go again i am observing myself wanting to experience uh this way of being that I already am and I'm aware of that like as a thought construct and I go all right well I'm I'm still going to sit here I'm still going to practice and it feels to me that the more I do that and the more I'm patient with myself and the more patient compassionate kind loving I am sort of like as a mirror for my own practice in conversation and dialogues and I'm, I kind of I guess measure my progress in that way like what what if this is helping me or helping others too, if I'm exploring this with others, what are the fruits of my labor? Mm-hmm. And yet I look at the paradox of it. You know, in the in the Buddhist teachings, uh, one teaching that I'm thinking about is this notion that uh, all beings have Buddha nature as mm-hmm. as our essence, but that Buddha nature is like a seed with within us. So we could say that we all have the seed. But is a seed the same thing as a redwood tree? No. If it's a redwood tree seed, is the redwood tree seed the same thing as the redwood tree? Sort of and not really. Sort of not really, right? So that is to say, right, when let's be realistic here. Let's just be really honest, right? As I'm moving through my day, am I in a meditative state all the time? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or am I being mindful all day long? Absolutely not. No, my mind is 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 cogitating, is churning with, uh, I hope that this person sees me this way but I'm afraid that I'm a total imposter, you know, or uh, yeah. whatever, whatever my mind, wherever my mind's going to go, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. So 
I think a lot of it also has to do, especially we could be like a, a, a great meditator or a good meditator when we're all alone, but then you just you get in a room with someone else and then all my neurosis is just going to come pouring out. Of me. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with that too. <laughs> so then we got this other thing, which is our, um, you know, our thoughts, where our mind goes, are, are those, those crunchy feelings inside. You know, when someone uh, eats the food that you left in the fruit refrigerator, you know, whatever it is, like, there's our triggers, you know, and, and when we're triggered, are we being, uh, perfect spacious equanimous beings no we're not i mean we're being ourselves and that's that's maybe that's we're being our human self but that's different than being in a state of wisdom all day long so i i don't know if this is speaking into the the point but i think that um The more time that I'm spending dedicating myself to practicing uh, mindfulness, uh, mindfulness awareness, or being paying attention, and uh, especially relaxing, actually, uh, relaxing with wherever my mind goes. It's like, um, I like this analogy, like at the beginning of when we're just starting to meditate, it's like our mind is like this mountain and we have a, there's a beach ball and it, ta- it can take a lot of effort to walk up the hill and to balance the beach ball at the top of the mountain. And it's like this craggy mountain and the wind can blow it off. Almost anything can blow uh, the beach ball off the top of the mountain. But then over time, over weeks, especially if you go on meditation retreat, seven week retreat, 10 day retreat, or a longer retreat over time, if you spend a lot of time meditating and then all those disturbances are coming more and more like that, that craggy mountain starts to flatten out over time so that it's easier to balance the beach ball for a longer period of time. It's getting more flat. And then over time, you know, but still the wind blows the ball one way or another. And then eventually over time that, that craggy mountain, you know, through a lot of mind training can start to become like a valley. And then it takes more wind, more of a storm to blow our minds somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it may still happen, but it may be quicker that the ball comes now, now the ball starts to come back by itself. We don't have to spend so much effort. The, the ball rolls up and then it lands back in the valley. And so eventually uh, our mind can have this capacity where we can relax more and more with all of the craziness of our outer world and still coming back again and again to the simplicity of this present fresh moment of experience.
the crazy, beautiful part uh, of this, I, I find that is reassuring is, I think it's a, a self-love and a self-acceptance for mo moments when I'm not being quote unquote mindful or doing some weird thing where maybe I'm playing out a trauma that I don't even know about because it's unconscious. But this path, at least to me, I can look at that and go, oh, and the totality of being is appearing in that way. And that's okay. Like I'm a, like, I can forgive myself. I can accept myself. I can make peace with that. And I guess in a way then I'm bringing that awareness into those places where maybe, maybe before I would do that and not even think, uh, I would just say, oh, that was wrong. I, I did that wrong and, and not even have the uh, self-reflecting thoughts to, to, uh, to look at that. And, and that's, I'm, I'm actually juxtaposing my own experience with that to some people, for example, uh, Nisargadatta, Maharaj, I just heard uh, Rick Archer on Buddha at the Gas Pump talking to um, David Goodman. David Goodman was the, the guy that lived with Ramana Maharshi and, and Nisargadatta and spent time with these beings. And David Goodman said, without a doubt, he said that man's body was addicted to cigarettes. And he, he I, I guess he died of um, lung cancer. And for the last year of his life at um, meetings with people that would come to listen to him, instead of having a circle there, they, they cleared out a path for him to pace up and down because his, his whole body, mind, I, I imagine his mind too, was going through the normal withdrawals from having been addicted to cigarettes his whole life. And I guess I'm, I'm bringing this up, thinking about uh, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche as well, who's so here's an embodiment of, uh, by, by, by the estimation of many people that have, have been with him and, and have received benefit from his teaching, who maybe struggled with alcohol addiction. Or, or he died of alcohol addiction. Yeah, right? So um, it's an interesting thing to, to explore how freedom, I guess, is so free that it can even appear to be addicted, we could say. I really feel, I feel the, um, in, in the sharing, you know, this feels like the point in the conversation about like, okay, let's, well, there's spiritual view, there's spiritual practice, but then there's also, let's call it just human, human beings. Uh -huh. And this, la this last year, this last year or two, um, It's been a powerful time of really looking into myself and starting to see so much more of like all of the crazy parts that mm -hmm. live. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 
I've gotten into doing these retreats in the dark and uh, it's a practice where you go into uh, a space, a, a dark room space, it's totally dark and uh, food comes through a slot in the door. And uh, it's basically like a, a voluntary solitary confinement. That's essentially the practice. So um, it's an interesting process to be in a dark room by yourself for seven days. I've done seven days. I've done 14 days. I've done 21 days. And there's what you have read in a book, what you think, you know, and then there's what you do when you're alone by yourself in a, a room by yourself and no one's watching. And needless to say, it fleshes out all of the bullshit inside. Yeah. And it, I'm not saying that there's, it's not fleshed out. It's, there's, there's, it's just, it's just on tap, you know. Flushing. Flushing. Yeah. Um, I'm really like the word that lands in this moment. It's like, there's also, I think something that can feel sort of disappointing, you know, in a way that, you know, you can have a teacher that who's an incredible teacher who can explain really profound spiritual truths, but then is also addicted in some way, whether it's alcohol or cigarettes or sex, you know, yeah. has, is showing this kind of unintegrated aspect of their humanity that you, you can't quite rationalize. You could try to, right? But that actually, um, you know, it's just kind of out there. Right. Yeah. And I think it's a really, really valuable thing to... have to lean into the kind of the seeming contradiction of um you know on one level we could say that there's no problem right there's you know hu human beings or the universe is unfolding in um a kind of divine intelligence according to according to or just as it is you know that 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 there's a there's a wholeness or completeness or a perfection to life. But at the same time, there's all this uh, chaos and suffering that also happens in life. And to not embellish the, the divinity, but also not um, damn the, the shadow aspect. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a, this is constantly the work that I'm doing on myself and also with other people as well, which is there's part of me that's 
totally free and liberated, dare I say. And then there's these other aspects or other parts of me that seem not at all congruent with this part of me that's free. So then I look and I go, okay, how can these two things, instead of being at odds with each other, uh, integ integration is a word that comes to mind, individuation, Carl Jung, right? He talks about the full individual unique expression. And I, I, I hold the belief, it's, I think it's a belief that in order for me to be fully free and fully liberated and fully integrated with all the whole, I have to be fully individuated as well. And so those two things are not uh, uh, mutually exclusive or at odds with each other. One, one, it's sort of like this, Adam. It's like when I witness myself in some egoic, neurotic behavior, uh, thoughts, way of being, whatever it is, well, I'm witnessing it. And, and because I'm witnessing it, then it's almost as though I am seeing from the place of consciousness or from the place of freedom where there appears to be this repetitive pattern from some trauma where I'm not quite yet all there, so to speak. And, and how, and what do you do with that? What do you do with the witnessing? I want to give it, I want to give an example. Uh, and maybe we can talk about trauma too, because I think these are, are really interrelated. There's this, uh, I'll give the actual experience that I had the other day where, where something came up. We were sitting for Shivaratri doing a uh, chanting mantras. And I went there. I mean, I went to right where I am right now. It's like this, this beautiful doorway into this stateless state or, or whatever it is that where I can't even give any words to it. And at the end of it, I... Uh, we were going around sharing one word of what our experience was. And I basically said, I have no words for this, but fuck. And I just said, fuck <laughs> really, really loud because that seemed ecstatic and in, in, in clear alignment with, uh, to, to an extent what I was experiencing. And a friend of mine who's actually a, a he's a psycho spiritual addiction coach we've been trading back and forth doing sessions with me me as the client that I'll, I'll be the client for him he asked me because Zlatko was sitting sitting right next to me uh we met for a session here and he said was that uh how was that experience for you because Zlatko and i we have we go back and forth of um uh, sometimes i'll i'll express myself and uh, we have had moments where it doesn't feel that my full expression is welcome or appropriate. And then, so we have a dynamic, a kind of a, a clash, this, this thing of, Oh, I feel controlled, et cetera, et cetera. And so we look, we look at that and we work with that. And in this moment, when he asked me about it, he said, so how do you, how do you feel? Um, 
she responded to that or was she what did i make her uncomfortable by screaming fuck at the end of our, our chanting thing and it was so beautiful adam because i said i didn't even think about that it wasn't even uh, a blip on my radar actually and and so in talking about that and that's been crucial to the work that he and i are doing and i'm, I'm noticing I'm, I'm noticing that i'm kind of nervous sharing this right now because it's like some deeply personal stuff in this dynamic that's lots can i have but hopefully uh yeah i think it's for the for the good of of our conversation and hopefully there's some value and benefit for people listening but it, it feels really vulnerable for me to be sharing this right now but uh looking back on it i was really joyful to notice that there wasn't um it was, it was it's it's like this i wasn't looking to be shut down mm -hmm. i wasn't putting the signal out oh no, how is my significant other gonna, going to respond to me versus just being really in this full like free expression. And I, I, I feel to answer the question in a really roundabout way that I, I was no longer in a trauma response by unconsciously or subconsciously doing something only to elicit the response because really I just wanna feel loved and accepted. And I was just, in in this free expression where I wasn't even aware of I was so happy when my friend brought that to my attention because I was like man I didn't even think about that and nor did we have a a dialogue or an interaction about it to this day to this moment I still don't know how if she was feeling any type of way because of my expression so I don't know how much that answered the question uh but it, it's something like I feel a healing of a trauma occurs when I don't squirm away or do that thing that I used to do. And sometimes I might not even notice when I've overcome the trauma, just like in this, in this kind of this instance, I, I didn't even, I was just so connected to the natural expression or, or something like that, that that seemed to melt away this tie in um, that I had with feeling like oh if i say something i might not be accepted or loved or or understood or whatever whatever that might be how do, how does that land or, or does it make sense what i'm sharing with you mm -hmm. take a moment to feel in way in here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i want to i want to presence adam that if we could backtrack a little bit this was my response to how when i see my human doing something that is egoic unintegrated whatever it is how this free mm -hmm. consciousness element plays into that mm -hmm. you know one of the things that's been really really helpful for me in my own spiritual path is uh I'd say it's something I learned a lot around uh, being around Reggie, being around my teacher, Reggie Ray. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a tremendous amount of space for the messiness of the Sangha, the, the messiness of the community of the people that were there to go through, um, you know, what they're going through. Mm. And that's not something, uh, you know, I'm not 
I think it's a very unique uh, boundary or line. In in some sense, what I hear in your story with with Zlatka and in this Shiva Ratri experience, like there's something that happens once we come into community with each other. Yeah. Then there's needs, you know. Then we have the needs of the individuals in a space, and oftentimes you spend enough time around other people, needs are going to come into conflict with each other. And one, one person wants the room warmer and one person wants the room colder. And uh, that's just a small example, but like now we have big examples. We have preferences, we have needs, we have inclinations, we have desires, we have the engagement of our full human experience. And that's all happening within the context of the awareness that is more fundamental to all of us. You know, that's part of our, our, our commonality uh, of our, you know, our shared fundamental consciousness or human consciousness, but that there is the play, the Shakespeare play of our life that is, you know, riddled with drama, you know, is high with drama. And I noticed that I'm more interested in kind of digging into the drama aspect uh, on one level in doing this work that in the in, more in the past, I would kind of want to, uh, especially in the beginning, you know, I'd want to watch my anger from back here. And I think there's a tremendous value to being able to be non-reactive to yourself or another person. So um, I'm, I, uh, it's not to downplay the value of being able to witness and not respond. But I'm remembering, you know, just kind of bringing it into this notion of trauma. Oh, when I was about 23, uh, I was in a relationship with uh, another person who was a uh, a really deep meditator and practitioner. And she said to me once, she said, Adam, you're calm like a bomb. <laughs> That's good. I mean, it's not good, but but it was true. You know, it was true. And I felt totally nailed by her comments. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I felt like, yes, there's this kind of like spiritual practitioner, good, good Buddhist uh, outside. But inside, I just feel uh, I'm burning with something. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's, to me, that's where the, the real grit, where the juice, where the, the flavor of the, this process, like, um, it's been one of the most meaningful things in my path is to, in a sense, get more intimate or more trusting of the inevitability of the the clashes the collisions the uh disappointments that happen through doing this kind of work mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but not as a on one level like getting intimate with it and and having to get vulnerable with all of the ways that I am disappointing other people around me all the time. Mm. And, and, and as I disappoint other people, 
I'm disappointing a part of myself that wishes that I could be this great uh, enlightened being or Buddha or teacher, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm just not, you know, I'm just not there in, in, you know, my path. But I can still have an aspiration to that. But at the same time, there's something that's so um, freeing in a sense to be more of um, who I am, who I am at this moment in time. I really, um, I love this one teaching that the path of awakening is not about living up to the person that we think that we ought to be, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's about relaxing down and into and opening to the person that we most fundamentally are. Including all of the stuff that comes up in the process. Now, tell me if you see the irony in what you just shared, which is that if you accept exactly who you are and the the outbursts, the anger, the whatever whatever it is, you're just radically being you, that in that acceptance of that, that is the living embodiment of liberation itself. It could be, it could be, could be. be. I like the, uh, I'm tuning in. There's a a famous Zen teaching the great, the, to live in a great way is to be without anxiety about (laughs) non-perfection. Ooh, 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 man. I almost want to title the podcast. Can you say that quote again? Uh, as the the third Zen patriarch, Sansanin, he says, to live in the great way is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. Oh yeah. Like That's- if we just just take a take a long let's take a long vacation for a moment in not having anxiety about our non-perfection. you know to me when i when i I just felt that just a moment ago it's like there's just a tremendous sense of relief Mm -hmm. that's what i feel it's like yeah you know i i am who i am you know there's there's certain aspects that are okay and there's other aspects that are okay in this other way that other people might not feel are okay but this is you know this is me reminds me of a quote by your father's colleague friend jack cornfield who's many times he says in so many words you're perfect as you are or he's quoting someone too. We're we're perfect exactly as we are, and there is always room for improvement. 
Mm-hmm. Mm, there's there's one more piece at least right now there's only one more piece that i want want to uh, ask you about talk to you about which is uh the uneducating the unlearning involved with this understanding and I'm careful with my words with how I'm asking about this because you and I discussed this offline a couple of weeks ago, which is I have this idea that a great amount of human suffering could be avoided if somehow in some way this could be infused into the lives of young people instead of creating the traumas only to undo the traumas if we're lucky if we're fortunate if we have access to those tools and i i I say an uneducation and an unlearning piece adam that has to do with do children do babies already have this are they already the living emanation of exactly what we're speaking of and it only gets uh, how would I say taken away through conditioning and parents and society passing along those those traumas and how might we navigate uh, working with this hmm. feels like a super fast and deep topic, which I know that I'm fully well, I'll qualify myself in this moment to, to share my experience. And I think mm-hmm. it's a very uh, important topic, right? Especially at this time, like to really think about, you know, this time on the planet, there is a, a massive global shift in terms of our weather and climate change and our resources and countries uh, at every level of where we're at as a species there's a so much transformation that's happening yeah yeah and uh likely a great deal of instability that's coming in the next period of years and Mm -hmm. decades as our climate gets more and more intense and if i were to boil it down you know what would be my my vision or my dream for humanity it would be that we recognize that our leadership depends on our ability to um, have a sane relationship with reality Mm -hmm. and to do that we have to have a sane relationship with ourselves. And in order to just to, to, you know, begin to start to have that, um, that deeper perception to meet the challenges that are coming, we got to start at a really young age to begin to build our capacity as human beings to, um, with our own fundamental wisdom nature we could say Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And that's going to be a training that the only way to do that is to begin to create curriculums that um, come into the mainstream of our education and are as valuable as say math or English or science uh, along uh, along the lines of human growth and development, personal development, and you know specifically awareness. Mm-hmm. That awareness is really the key to healing our trauma. It's the key to learning how to be with the the pain aspects of our experience and develop a quality of resilience in the face of stress and overwhelm. So, you know, whatever your question was, it got me rolling on this. I, I think that that is it's the linchpin in terms of the future of consciousness is that it becomes something that is, let's say democratized and given freely and openly the very, very best of spiritual wisdom. That spiritual wisdom is something that doesn't belong to Buddhism. It doesn't belong to um, you know, Advaita Vedanta or any one tradition. And yet, um, you know, to be human is to be uh, fundamentally have a, a consciousness that is, has this, you know, pure, perfect wisdom nature to it. But that unless we actually cultivate a recognition of that aspect of our nature, it won't grow. So, um, you know, certainly when I think about the lasting impact that I want to have on this planet, uh, my intention is that through the course of my life, through the course of my work, that this work on being present, being present, uh, and aware of uh, the deeper aspect of consciousness, that that could be shared out uh, to the mainstream in such a way that it becomes so common, it becomes so second nature that in the generations to come, that is um, developed in you know, kids and young people at a very early age and thus ensures the, um, the thriving of our species mm-hmm. in the, the tumultuous decades that we have to come and centuries that we have to come. Who knows? Who knows what, how it will go? But, you know, it's definitely a moment in time where the very best of what we got, like we got to start learning it very very young in our, in our life. That's my sense. Yeah. Yeah. I share that. And to that point, developing it in young people, it it may well even look like somehow attuning to seeing how it's already there and present. And uh, those teaching would then not be conditioning them into unnecessary suffering, which all of it's unnecessary by my estimation and separation and, and, and things like this. And I don't, I don't have an answer either. I just know that it's something that I've been really passionately thinking about over the past month or so. And, and, 
I'm, I'm speaking to Cal Caverly Morgan, who she got, um, she has a book called The Heart of Who We Are, uh, Realizing Freedom Together, something, the subtitle, something like that. And she got the first mindfulness program into a public high school. And I guess one of the potential like roadblocks, if I could call it that, uh, from what I've heard is fundamentalist Christian groups kind of buckling down and, and thinking, which I, I think it's uh, a mistake to, to think this. And, and it's coming from an unwillingness to look at really what it is that we're talking about. We're not talking about devil worship or the satanic practices where we're talking about something that is common. And I, I, I feel that it can be stripped of any, um, for example, Sanskrit or Pali or terminology that might insinuate that this is connected to some one particular uh, religious set of beliefs, because it's, at least it's clear to me, and I think it's very evidently uh, clear to you that this is, uh, I almost want to say it goes beyond our birthright of, mm -hmm. of knowing and, and communing and being what it is we really are i mean how much more fundamental does it get than that who knows maybe we'll put something together and and uh propose it somewhere i i, I don't it's a massive project right like it's this it's this massive thing but i really feel called to continue to at least talk about it and explore it in a way that mm -hmm. uh, can maybe be be of help and and to your point we're we're helping you're helping in the ways that you can and i'm helping in the ways that i can and and that's the best we got i think the the last word on this topic you know that as a species you know it's like we got to look at how do we work with our own nervous system you know I love one of one of my teachers, uh, a great mentor, George Bertelstein. He said, "You know, there's no flower in the universe more sensitive than the human being." Mm. And so we got a really sensitive, you know, inner self. Or, mm -hmm. but then we got all of this challenge out here. So how do we feel safe to be ourselves in the light of all of the stuff that's around us? And that's my prayer. You know, that's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for my friends and my community and mm -hmm. um, really everyone that we can feel safe and at home and whole, you know, inside of ourself, inside of our body suit and how it feels on the inside. And that is that feeling of safety, you know, the more, the more safe that we feel inside of ourselves, the more safe that we can be to each other and the more safe we can be together, the, the more safe that we can be to each other in all of the ways, the more we can, uh, I think, come together and start to work on the bigger problems that we're all facing as a species and as a humanity. So that's my prayer. And um, 
you know, I want to say thank you so much for this time today. I'm so appreciative. Thank you, brother. Yeah, I really cherish our, our time together and this exploration. And I, I will, at the bottom of the, in the show notes, I'll link up your, your uh, website. And I want to just ask if there's any offerings, programs, retreats, or anything that uh, you want to talk about now. And, and if not, I'm happy to just link up your all your information in the notes as well. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's kind of all in the pipeline right now. I'm, I'm uh, literally writing the outline for my next course. It's called relaxing the body into being. Mm. And it's the five, uh, five step elemental process of somatic meditation, uh, which is a synthesis of the, the last the last decade of of this work so um, i'm excited to launch that uh that course uh mid-april uh i'll be launching or we'll be starting that course and if you're interested uh feel free to reach out to me and uh, i do offer private one-on-one -on -one, uh sessions I, I do combination somatic work body work online coaching uh, and, um, yeah, I, I do that work as well. So if you're interested in I, any of those, uh, those things, then feel free to reach out and, uh, yeah, I'll look forward to what's to come here. I, I feel that there's something that we're going to do together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, everything that Adam just said, will be, you'll be able to find it in the notes and, Bro, did the back pain go away? What ended up happening to the back pain? You know, I can say that, uh, you know, this work, this work, I'd say that there's, there's a lot of benefit here. I, I definitely, uh, 10 years later, I could say that my back is in, in pretty good condition. So, um, yeah, you know, underneath all of that, mm. I think we can learn how to relax more and, that's what I'm excited to share in this upcoming course is how do we relax our body into being? Yeah. Relaxing the body into being. I love the title. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you, my brother, everyone. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time on Unspeakable Bliss. Mm -hmm.